0: We missed you. Very wonderful that it is well that you did during uh, offering. I really like that. Anyway, um, so if you have your Bibles, please open them up to Genesis 21. If you do not have your Bible, it will be behind me on the screen. All right. Um, Thus far in Genesis, we're in the Abraham narrative story arc. And we're looking at all the miraculous thing that God does for Abraham as well as Abraham's mess-ups along the way, which is what we talked about last week when he again, for the second time, decided to say that Sarah was his sister um, and trick, basically, Abimelech. Now, however, we're going to come to one of the more important moments, though, in Abraham's life, and that is the birth of Isaac. Um, So let's go ahead and jump right on in, verses 1 through 7. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. All right, we begin chapter 21 with the information that the Lord visited Sarah. Indeed, we find it stated in two ways. The first is that he visited her as he said and did as he promised The as he said reflects back on chapter 18 when God said that he will visit within a year's time. The promise, however, is more than God visiting her, but also opening up her womb. As such, the Lord is faithful to his word and his promise. Sarah's womb is opened by God and she bears Abraham a son. That this occurs in his old age reflects that Abraham is approximately 100 years old when the son from Sarah is born. Likewise, we are again reminded that this is in step with what God has spoken of previously, promising in both chapters 16 and 18 that Abraham would have a son through Sarah. If the first two verses deal with the word and the promise of the Lord coming to pass, then the next two verses deal with the obedience of Abraham and Sarah to that word. It was God who said that they would name the child Isaac, uh, which is laughter. Likewise, it is God who commanded Abraham to circumcise all the males of his household and newmore, newborn males, thenceforth, on the eighth day of their birth in chapter 17. Thus, we find Abraham diligent in his obedience to the word of the Lord. We are then reminded of Abraham's age, that he was, again, 100 years old when Isaac was born to him. This reflection has three points. The first dealing with the age of Abraham as a reminder of God's providence, even in his old age. The second is to remind us of God's word, that when Abraham was 99, God promised for this thing to happen within a year's time, which would make Abraham 100. Finally, in all the genealogies of Genesis, we are told of the person's age, along with the particular offspring, uh, especially with the chosen line. And we see that with Seth, and we see that um, with Abraham. Um, And, well, Abraham, obviously, but uh, also in regards to uh, Noah. At this point, Sarah reflects over all that has transpired. She uses the name Isaac in order to express her delight over the birth of her newborn son. Again, everyone will laugh. Um, Everyone who hears that Sarah will well past the age of menopause has been granted a child. They will rejoice Indeed, the reflection is even stronger as she wonders who could have told Abraham that this would have occurred, and yet here she is with her babe. Sarah's heart is full of joy over this great blessing in her life. Now we'll do the next few verses. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. that you have had with the woman also because he is your offspring so abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to hagar putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away and she departed and wandered into the wilderness of beersheba i know the screen behind me is blank i'm i believe in i believe in betsy <laughs> but That's okay. Thanks, Betts. Uh, Well, if anyone thought that the story would have a nice peachy ending there, you would be mistaken. As it is, we find a few years of Isaac's life flashed within a few verses. We find that he is weaned, making him approximately three years old. Uh, We notice the reaction once this occurs is for a great feast to occur. The reason for this is that the life expectancy of infants um, during the time period of Abraham was actually very small. And as such, it was a time of celebration once the child came to such an age. Uh, It meant that they're probably going to be okay. Yet in the joyful celebration, Sarah catches the son of Hagar, the servant whom Sarah gave to Abraham to bring about God's blessing in chapter 15, laughing. Uh, Some translations change this to mocking. In the New Testament, Paul calls this persecution, that he was persecuting Isaac. Ultimately, we can't be sure what exactly happened in this situation. Was Ishmael laughing at Isaac, perhaps thinking that this youth would really usurp his position as heir apparent? Was he only playing with Isaac? We actually can't be sure. Um, All we can be sure of is Sarah saw a threat in this moment. And it is likely a threat that does. I'm leaning towards. um, He was picking and mocking Isaac. Thus, seeing the threat, she immediately goes to Abraham and demands that he cast out the slave woman and her son. Notice it is a bit calloused on her part. Um, She doesn't name Hagar. She doesn't even call her Abraham's wife, which technically she is, nor does she name Ishmael. No, she just calls her a slave woman and her son. She also gives the reason for her concern and inheritance. There is only one heir, and that will be Isaac. In hearing this, Abraham was very displeased. The word displeased is often used to describe God against sinners. Thus, this is an angry displeased. It further shows how angry he was by saying he was very displeased. Abraham is livid at the thought of abandoning Ishmael. He loves his son. That much we can be sure of. Now, at this point, it would be hard not to take side with Hagar, Ishmael, and Abraham. Then God speaks. First, he, he comforts Abraham by telling him not to be displeased over the situation with Ishmael and Hagar. We notice how God says, the boy and your slave woman, and immediately notice how God does not name them either. Um, the boy here, it should be added, can be used not just for young males, Ben and Diggory's age, uh, but even those into their teens and even young adults, up to about 20 years of age, uh, give or take. At this point, Ishmael is at least 13 years old, if not older. Um, Some actually put him at 17. That Hagar's reference may imply Abraham was also worried for her sake as well as Ishmael's. Um, Despite the encouragement, God tells Abraham to listen to Sarah. Despite her intentions, the truth is Sarah is right. Isaac is the one through whom the descendants come. He is the chosen one, the chosen heir by God. Yet, that does not mean Ishmael is to be left in the lurch, so to speak. Um, He will, in his own right, become a great nation, as well since he is Abraham's son. Thus, Abraham can have hope in that God um, will fulfill the promise spokenly previously to him concerning his son Ishmael. Abraham is quick to obedience. He rises early in the morning, gives Hagar and Ishmael food and water, and then sends them on their way. It seems unlikely that Abraham put the food, water, and Ishmael um, on Hagar's shoulders, but instead it is likely that he gave some to both to carry uh, for their journey. As it is, Hagar does depart and goes into the wilderness of Beersheba. Alrighty, and then we'll read up to 21. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up, lift up the boy. And hold him fast with their hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave it the boy to drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So Hagar wanders. In the wilderness. And as time goes on, the water runs out. And as we can be sure of, when the water goes out in the wilderness, so does hope. Thus, she puts the child under one of the bushes. We notice how the boy is, not the, is now the child, uh, showing us the relationship between Hagar and Ishmael. It's not just the boy, it's, it's her child. Upon putting him under the bushes, she goes away off, as the text says about a bow shot. What is the purpose of this? Why place him in this position? Why move away from him? Because she does not want to see her child's death. It's somewhat illogical on her part. She could turn back and look since a bow shot wasn't out of eyesight. Still, perhaps that's part of it. When one loses hope, then we can often lose what makes sense sometimes. With nothing more to do in the moment, we find Hagar breaking, as we would say. Her grief, her sorrow, becomes too much to bear The loss of everything, even the point of losing her child, is too much for her. Yet all is not lost, is it? In this moment of great sorrow, God hears the voice of the boy. That God hears the voice of the boy is interesting and likely implies that Ishmael, while under the bushes, was praying to God, or so most commentators believe. Being Abraham's son, we can assume that he knew God and would pray to him in this time of distress. Some also argue that because it was Ishmael's doing which led to this predicament, for him to be heard implies the necessity for him to be the one who prayed. Um, And that's from Calvin. Regardless, it is because of Ishmael that God hears, which adds another interesting moment as Ishmael continues to not be mentioned by name, yet Ishmael the name means God hears. As such, the angel of the Lord speaks from heaven to Hagar, the angel of the Lord being the physical representation of the Lord, which can be seen in the way he speaks to Hagar. As is normal in these circumstances, thus far in Genesis, God asks a rhetorical question, similar to Adam and Eve, to Cain, etc. That is, why are you upset? Well, God knows why she's upset. Indeed, he um, immediately says, fear not, because God has heard Ishmael, and in hearing Ishmael, has decided to intervene on his behalf and her behalf. Thus she is to get up, go back to the boy, and take him by the hand. He then repeats what was told to Hagar when she ran away previously, and what has been told to Abraham from Ishmael will come a great nation. Her fears can be abated at this point. The word of the Lord will come to pass, his promises are sure. At this point, the intervention takes place rapidly. God shows her the water which will give them life. He has provided for those who were in such great need. And as the text closes, we find that God continued to be with Ishmael as he grew. As was promised previously, that he would live a somewhat nomadic lifestyle, it is fulfilled as he lives in the wilderness. He was an expert with the bow, whether for hunter hunter, for warfare, or for both. Ultimately, he roamed the wilderness of Paran, and his mother, doing the duty of the father, found him a wife in her homeland of Egypt. This is interesting, as eventually Abraham will find Isaac a wife from his homeland in Mesopotamia. Thus, in the end, Ishmael, the first son of Abraham, he will be blessed by God. All right. So the main point of this text is to describe the coming of Isaac and the expulsion of Ishmael. Sarah has promised to have, was promised to have a child, and though it took some time, God did deliver on his promise. Yet like most families, the situation becomes dire as Sarah did not want Ishmael to take part in receiving the inheritance. Th- uh, this causes Abraham distress, and though it does, Sarah is right, and God commands Abraham to send Hagar away and the child. While in the wilderness without hope, Ishmael is heard by God, and God intervenes on Ishmael and Hagar's behalf. While all of this may seem sorrowful to us, the truth is, it is a necessary step for the plan of God. And ultimately, both sons of Abraham will be greatly blessed. Alright, so what are some applications we can get from this? Um, Of all the things which we should take from this chapter is how God's word is true. If we remember, it was the word of the Lord which brought the the promise to Sarah and Abraham concerning the conception of Isaac. God did not speak in vain, nor did he promise in vain. Instead, the promises were sure, the word fulfilled. But this should not come as a surprise to us who have been diligently studying Genesis. When we consider how the Lord was the first to cause all of creation, how did he do it? By speaking it into existence. As such, nature obeys its creator, Likewise, when we consider the promise of judgment, should Adam and Eve take from the tree, or Noah in the flood, and when God speaks uh, to himself of the divine counsel during the scattering of the Babylonites. In all of these different ways, we have seen the word of the Lord spoken, and it is always spoken in truth. So when we find Abraham being told a promise by God, then we should expect that promise to occur. We can expect that the word of the Lord will be fulfilled. There is no reason to doubt God in his word, because every time he has spoken, it has come to pass. Thus the coming of Isaac should not surprise any of us. As it is, though, God has not only promised Isaac to be born. Consider what we read from Genesis 17. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. In these verses, we have the covenant again being ratified. Not only is Abraham promised descendants, nor is he only promised land. No, Abraham is also promised that God would be his God and his people's God, and they his people. This is the most significant and important statements made in the covenant with Abraham. If we were to consider it, all the other promises and all the other words spoken in the covenant would be great, but it is that God would be theirs and that they would be his that gives the covenant life. So when God fulfills his word to Abraham and Sarah by giving them Isaac, it should cause us to reflect back onto all the covenant which has been established. And it should cause us to remember that God is not capable of failure. His word brought the promise from Abraham would come a people which belong to God. If God can cause Isaac to come into existence from Sarah and Abraham then it should give them and us further encouragement to trust the word of the Lord and the promises which he makes. Indeed, that is much of what we are encouraged with when it comes to Abraham and Sarah and their life, that the word of the Lord is sure and true. Thus, if there is anything which is promised by God, we should put our trust in him to fulfill his word. Now the question is, is there anything which would pertain to us which would exemplify this? Is there anything we can think of which has been promised, which has also occurred, just like Isaac for Abraham and Sarah? The answer is an emphatic yes. Indeed, from the moment Adam and Eve ate of the fruit onward, there has been a message given to all of humanity. It will not be this way forever. Despite the fall, despite all the times of failure on the part of humanity... There has been an echo of something far greater about to occur. We see it in the promise to Eve that through her life would come, and from her children the head of the servant will be crushed. We see it in Noah as he entered into the safety of the ark. We see it in the promise to Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. Yes, here we see the echo of something far greater than what seems on the surface. If we were to look ahead to the law, to the prophets, it all speaks of something to happen which would fulfill all and redeem all. The only one who could possibly do this is God himself. And that is exactly what God did. His own word became flesh. And in becoming flesh brought redemption to those who are of flesh. By living, dying, and rising again in time, space, history, and flesh, the word of God, "...was made known, and the promise of ages was fulfilled. That through Abraham would come the people of God, and it is through Christ we join in this holy assembly, this great joy of salvation. So it is, when we consider Christ, we recognize the greatest of promises fulfilled, that He dwelled and continues to dwell among us, that the covenant concerning Abraham is fulfilled, that God has made for Himself a people who call Him God." And it is through Christ that this word and promise is fulfilled. When we think of the word of the Lord being fulfilled, and when we think of the promise of God coming to Sarah and Abraham, it should cause us to rejoice. For our God is faithful in his word and his promises. The story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac remind us all of these things. For it tells us of the God who is there and how he is not silent. And it tells us that he will not let even a single promise be undone. If he can bring forth Isaac, then he can fulfill all the promises given to us through his word. Thus, for those in Christ we recognize this, he has delivered Isaac. He has gone further and delivered his very own son, Christ Jesus. As such, we can have hope for the future that all those who believe will have eternal life. He has spoken, he has promised, and we can trust him to fulfill all he has claimed through faith. Praise God, for he is truly able. So that's the first application. Now the second one is a little bit different. Um, another application to take away from this is Hagar and Ishmael circumstance. No matter who you are, uh, you can have some sympathy for them wandering in the wilderness to the point of not even having uh, enough water. And I suppose if we were in that situation, or we would likely have done something very similar to Hagar and Ishmael. Either let the sorrow overtake us, as Hagar did, or plead help from God. In all truth, I do see this in myself. While it may not be true that I have wandered around in a wilderness, per se, I have experienced wilderness places in my life. My wilderness has been moments of grief, sorrow, and depression. They have been moments when everything collapses in on me, and I am left wondering, how could I ever survive this? How can I overcome this? I suspect we have all felt that way in some way or another. We have all had these experiences when our souls feel dry, when our hearts are troubled, and when we look around and everything seems so much darker than it once was, whether it be from the loss of a loved one, being overburdened or plain and simple exhaustion. Whatever the case may be, it leaves us without. It leaves us longing for God to deliver us from the wilderness. Thanks be to God, then, for Ishmael and Hagar. How easy it is for us to forget that our God is far greater than the wilderness and the wastelands around us. Yet it is true, God is greater. He can turn our circumstances for good, and he can, we can trust in him to deliver us, to bring intercession, to change the landscape of our lives. Sometimes it is necessary for us to go through these kinds of situations in order for us to rely more on God. That is probably the most important aspect of our wilderness wanderings to take hold of. While in our minds and in our hearts we may believe such places are useless, the truth is God can use even the most dire of our circumstances for good and for his glory. If our goal in life is his glory, and if we find joy in him, then the wilderness places will not look so bad if he has brought us into them. In this way, we can see our deserts turn into gardens and our wastelands turn into green pastures not because of our own hands, but because our God is gracious and He is working in our minds and in our hearts to know Him more and more and in knowing Him, delight in His ways. One of His ways is leading us through trials in order for us to grow closer to Him in this faith. Thus we find a connection between our desert sojourns and our faith, that our God can change our circumstances, though it doesn't always mean living leaving the desert, It might mean receiving water and manna while there. As we live on this earth, we will not escape the reality of our struggles. No matter how good we are or how much we try, we will always end up with struggles of various sorts. If this be the case, then let's pray to God that he use these struggles and use these times of long walks in the hot desert sun to draw us closer to him. Let us pray that he would cause us to trust in him to know that He does not lead us in vain, but that He is leading us with a purpose. Far too often when we enter into these desert places, these wilderness places, we give up. But why should we? We have seen so much of God's grace and love. We have heard and understood and know to be true the gospel of Jesus Christ. If He who sent His Son to die on a cross does so, And out of that darkest moment in history brings about the redemption we so desperately need. If he can fulfill his promises and his word um, even in this catastrophe then why should we have any doubts about what he can do in our lives? Now, in this moment I am in a wilderness place because I didn't print off my last page. (laughs) So as it is is, we're just going to wing it. Um Alright, so the truth is that our God is faithful to us. We have no reason to fear. If we're in the wilderness, if we're in these dark places, why should we fear darkness? Our God is a God of light. And if our God can transform even our darkest circumstances into light, why should we fear? Why should we lose hope? And the answer is, is that we shouldn't lose any hope. Instead, we should continue to seek out Him to trust Him in our times of struggle, to trust that He can lead us in whatever ways that would glorify Him, and that we should continue to seek out His glory to find our joy. If that's how we live, His glory, our joy, then we will be able to overcome because of Him, not because of us. Because He is worth it, and His joy is spectacular. Now, in all of this, this leads us to the gospel. You might as well just keep on going. I winged it the last of it. <laughs> Rob's going to remember this one for future reference. Hey, remember that one time, Sean? We do that a lot to each other. Um, all right, and so in regards to this chapter, you know, the gospel of Christ, we always cover four truths of the gospel, and that's origins, fall, redemption, and salvation, or glory, I should say. Um, And in this chapter, we don't really find origins except for the fact that through Isaac is going to come Jesus. I mean, the origins of the faith start with this family that God chose in the middle of nowhere, a bunch of pagans. From this group of pagans comes Jesus. And right away, we have that moment of origins with the faith. But even with that, we want to go even further back to the origins of humanity because even if we start there, it doesn't start right. So when we go back to the origins and we remember that God created each of us as his image bearers, that each of us are created with dignity, sanctity, and worth because we are made in the image of God, it reminds us of the importance of humanity and why it's so sad that the next thing happened, and that is the fall. Because the fall, we take what is so beautiful and so wonderful That is humanity that God created us originally in, and we destroy it, and we tarnish it. And like a Van Gogh painting, we walk up into the museum and we rip it in pieces. That which is so wonderfully made, humanity, fallen so far down in sin, in darkness. And as such, we deserve judgment for that. Let me tell you, if you go to a museum and you rip up a Van Gogh, you're going to get in trouble. (laughs) You're going to jail. Um, You're going to pay a hefty fine. Um, So now imagine, though, that God is the creative one, and he created a masterpiece, and then you go and rip it up. You kind of deserve something for that, I would say. And the truth is that we deserve judgment for our sins. This sin which tarnishes our relationships with each other, with ourselves, with God, with the world around us, it deserves judgment. Judgment is a good thing to happen against us because we are sinners. So the question is, what can we do about it? And the answer is, repeatedly, in the history of humanity, you and I are too weak because no matter how hard we might try, no matter how hard we might try and follow the law, no matter how hard we might try and follow righteousness, we always fail. And because of that, we need redemption. Because of that, we need someone else to help us. Just like Hagar and Ishmael, we are wandering in the wilderness, and we need someone to save us. Thanks be to God, Jesus does. Jesus saves us. And through his life, death, and resurrection, we find redemption from our sins. We find the glory of God most high right in this person of Jesus Christ. And not only do we see it in Him, but if we have faith in Him, we get to partake of that glory. We get to experience the glory of God. Starting now. Why would you not want to start now, experiencing the glory and the wonder and the love of God through Jesus? It is a wonderful thing that God would take people as broken as we are and fix us. And even though we may not walk perfectly today, We'll stumble, we'll struggle. I know I do. I know Rob does. I said that for cure's sake. Even though we may struggle, the truth is Christ redeems all of us. And he can redeem even the times when we have stumble. He can take us again out of the desert. And so where does it lead if we are in Christ? If we are in Christ and it's glory, it's life... It's the everlasting kingdom of our God in which we become inheritors, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus does. His righteousness given to us. So as we continue to live, let's seek Jesus. Let's continue to seek out God in repentance and faith. Let's continue to do as Abraham did obedience to the word of the Lord as soon as Isaac is born, naming him Isaac and also circumcising him. Let's ask God to circumcise our hearts so that we would have a mark on this world, not for ourselves, not for our glory, but for him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you continue to teach us through your word, for reminding us that your word is sure, it's true. And that we have no reason to doubt you because you are a great and marvelous God. You are the only God, the creator of the cosmos, the God who keeps all things in his hands, who orders it all. And so, Lord, as we continue on in our lives, as we continue on step by step, we ask that you would provide manna, that you would provide water. We ask that you would. Remind us that you are here to comfort us. And Lord, we ask that your joy is what we seek. That your glory is what we try to attain, not by our own hands, but through your son Jesus, by following in his steps. We thank you, Lord, for you are a wonderful God. You are an intercessor. You are one who redeems. We praise your name. And in your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final